Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The news continues. I want to hand it over to Laura Coates and CNN Tonight. Laura? Anderson, thank you so much. I am Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. And listen, I want to be upfront with you. We're doing something different tonight. Something, frankly, that's extremely difficult. But we truly believe that it's important to do. You know, there's a tendency to want to turn our eyes from what is difficult. A tendency to just want to move on. It's it's human nature. I understand and believe me, I understand that. And sometimes the news does require a shift in focus. But just because the cameras leave a location doesn't mean the quest for information has ended or that the trauma has ended or that if we simply close our eyes that it can't happen or it won't happen. This is especially true when we're talking about the pandemic of gun violence and the indiscriminate nature of mass shootings. None of us want it to ever happen again. But the it is complex. It's very multifaceted. And how do we get there to where it doesn't happen again without full transparency, without staying on the story? Well, we we can't. So that's why tonight we're going to be playing the full 77-minute surveillance video from the Uvalde school massacre in real time. You might be asking why we're doing this. Three reasons. First, and, and most importantly, because the families of the 19 beautiful children And those two brave teachers who were killed on May 24th, they deserve answers. The survivors deserve answers. The entire community deserves answers. And we can't put the right questions to the police who responded or the local and state governments until we confront head on exactly what happened. And the second reason why, we know that you've seen parts of this agonizing video, maybe 30 second clips here, maybe a minute there, the bits with the most action, so to speak. But it is actually the lack of action that speaks volumes about the response. I mean, minutes pass and an entire hour and nothing happens. And I'm left wondering, you're left wondering how and why and what does it really mean? And that leads to our third reason to play it, to help improve law enforcement's response nationwide to mass shootings going forward. Because We all know it's a sad truth that a shooter might target a school again. Columbine, Virginia Tech, Sandy Hook, Parkland, and now Uvalde. And there may be more. So what can police learn from what happened here? And to wrestle with those questions and and much more, I'm joined by crime justice correspondent Shimon Procupez, who's been on the ground in Uvalde since this happened, and he's joining us here today. And two CNN senior law enforcement analysts, former FBI director, FBI director Andrew McCabe, and former Philadelphia Police Commissioner Charles Ramsey. 
Now, sometimes we're going to be talking as the video is playing and, and giving reporting and context and analysis. And sometimes we're going to be silent just to listen to what is happening. But here's an overview of what you're going to see. And I, please don't look away. We'll see the gunman enter the school. You're going to see in real time, minute by minute, how heavily armed and some heavily shielded officers spent all that time outside the door to those adjoining classrooms. You should also prepare yourself because we will play the sounds of the gunshots ringing out. Now, that has not been played on CNN before. We initially didn't air the audio of the gunman firing out of respect for the victims' families, and we still maintain that respect. And we, I think that's incredibly painful for them. And the last thing we would ever, that I, that anyone would ever want to do is to compound their grief. But the video, which was obtained by the Austin American statesman, was published in full on the paper's website several days ago. And because it has been in the public sphere, because the officer's response was informed by that gunfire, we are choosing to leave it in for a full and accurate accounting of what happened. Now, here's what you will not see and you will not hear. You will not hear the children <clears throat> screaming. That was edited out by the Austin American statesman because it's too graphic. I mean, can you think of anything more painful to hear? But while we won't tonight be hearing those painful sounds, remember the officers, the officers there, they could hear. There was no editing out of that moment. You also won't see the face of a child who was walking in the hall when the gunman entered, who then turned and ran away. The student's face was blurred to protect his identity. We're going to play that video in just a moment, but first I want to go around the table and I want to ask each of our esteemed panelists here who are the right people to have this discussion on a night like this. I want to know what is the one thing that you want our viewers to keep in mind over the next one hour and 17 minutes. There were several minutes, of you, as you all know, and thinking about what's going on. I, I'm wondering from each of you, what, do you, what are you going to look for? And we all know how difficult this is for the audience, for the viewers, for the families, and the necessity of having to really be in this moment and have the opportunity to help explain the inexplicable, frankly. But what are you going to be looking for? Shimon, you have been on the ground. You have been, and by the way, you have been unbelievably crucial I hope you understand that it is not taken lightly, that we know how difficult it is. And for you to be there day in and day out, you are an ally and you have been so professional and you have been devoted, which is what we knew you would be. Well, you know, thank you, Laura. And, and, you know, the support from certainly the network has been incredible. And so, you know, being there just from the first minutes that I got there on the ground, I knew something just didn't make sense. The timeline didn't make sense. A lot of things we weren't getting answers to, just didn't make sense. And then looking at this video, and the more I look at this video, for me, the thing is the first moments of this, Mm -hmm. the minute the officers, you know, yes, the gunman gets into the school and he's in there for a long time and he gets in there so easily. He just, he's just able to walk right in and he's in there for so long. And the officers, those first few minutes when they get inside and what we see there and them retreating. Hmm. That to me has been one of the most painful things to see. And it's been one of the most crucial things to see because right there, sort of, you get this feeling that they just gave up. They didn't know what to do. 
and they gave up. What do you guys think? I mean, you are, so in, in law enforcement, unfortunately, you have seen more than most people will ever see in a lifetime combined exponentially. What are you looking for, um, Commissioner Ramsey? Well, the one thing that I think uh, the public ought to know is that the actions of the officers really aren't consistent with active shooter training. Don't think that this is what is being trained around the country because it's not. Now, the first few minutes of the officers after they arrive, what they do is consistent with the training. But after that, there is absolutely nothing taking place. And I think it's important for people to keep that in mind, that that is not a reflection of law enforcement across the country. It just mm-hmm. isn't. Andy? Laura, there are so many notes. There are so many things that as, it's, as you go through the torture of watching this entire video, there are so many things that jump out to people like Commissioner Ramsey and I. But the thing that really stuns me is we shouldn't even be getting to that. It's all superfluous. The biggest mistakes were made in the first three to five minutes. None of what follows should ever have happened if the initial response had been consistent with active shooter training and the entry had been made at that point. So it's, it's, um, it, it's very, uh, it's tough to watch. Well, we're going to watch it and we're going to hone <clears> in <throat> on all those points because there were several minutes that were captured on video before the gunman even entered the school. Surveillance camera shows him crashing a truck just outside the property and firing at two people who were approaching him who quickly ran for cover and who, thankfully, are okay. Then crossing the parking lot of Robb Elementary School, when the shooter started spraying bullets outside the school, a teacher actually called 911 while shouting at children to take shelter inside of their classrooms. And here was that frantic call. And then at 11.33 a.m. local time in Uvalde, Texas, the gunman enters Robb Elementary School.
Going to take a short break now, but we're going to keep the video and the clock running. And for full transparency, I will describe what happened in those few minutes that went by that you did not see while we are in break. Remember, this is 77 minutes in all. Think about that as we go into a break. Those moments that you aren't seeing, those police officers, they're still in that hallway. Be right back. We're back continuing our in-depth look at the full 77-minute-long surveillance video from inside Robb Elementary School in Uvalde. The clock, as you see, is still running. We have not stopped the tape. We are now 11 minutes in. During the break, there were sounds of radio traffic and talk about how the shooter was contained and officers worrying for their fellow officers at the end of the hallway and the potential for crossfire. Let's keep watching and talk to our experts. First of all, um, Shimon, is Arredondo, the one we've heard so much about, are we seeing him visibly yet in we this don't, area? We don't see him on this tape, but he's there. Uh, he's there. He's already by now made that phone call on the landline, uh, and he calls dispatchers telling them what he needs, more resources. Remember, he doesn't have his radio with him. He's also on the phone asking for his radio. So he's there. He's just not in our view of right now. But there is there is body camera footage of him at the scene talking and I guess, making decisions and asking for help. So he's there. We just don't see him in the video. Um, McCabe, Ramsey, what are you all seeing? I mean, the expertise that you had between the two of you. I mean, this, these were the crucial moments you were both looking for. We've seen the initial response. What do you see? Absolutely. So, Chuck, what I see is, uh, I'm sure you're looking at the same thing. You initially have six or seven officers who were the first responders, first ones in the door. They hear the shots going off. And three of them, crucially three, go down the hallway, downrange towards the door where the threat is. And the other three or four stay back behind these positions of cover. That is inexplicable to me. It is to me, too, because they're not in a position to provide any cover for the ones going down the hall. Now, the first three are going to the sounds of the gunshots. That's exactly what they're supposed to do. No question about it. Ideally, if you've got four people in the training, you know, that's ideal for a situation like that. But you don't wait for four. If it was one person or two, you go for the gunshots. And the tr- That's right. And the training in Texas is explicit on this point. So the, the Texas uh, policy is active shooter response for school-based officers makes it very clear that whoever the first responders are, they go in and confront the gunman, whether that's four people, ten people, or just one person. You know, honestly, Laura, this is already taking too long. 
right? Yeah. Like, this should not have taken That's absolutely right. this long. We are way past where we should be here. This should have been over in the first few minutes. And honestly, those officers just should have been more aggressive. And that's the problem here. I mean, what I, one moment I saw just over this, I mean, we saw more than, I counted more than 20 times that you had to have the editor's note that silenced the screams of children. I mean, more than 100 shots fired in about two and a half minutes. The officers entering at about 3.02. And we heard one officer who was in the sort of the right corner who was going in and out. And he texts looks at his phone and it's something like, my wife's been shot. This is one of the officers we're learning that, right, in fact, right. his wife is a teacher at the school and she had was, been shot, yeah. Shimon. Um, yeah, Eva Morales, she was in the classroom. She was, she was one of the people who was calling and saying she needed help, that she was shot. Sadly, she died on the way to the hospital, which makes you wonder, had they gone in there sooner to get her out, could she have lived? It's a big question here. Whether or not, had the police acted sooner and gone inside that classroom... If kids would have lived, and certainly that teacher. Real quick, um, Commissioner Ramsey, on this point, and as you're continuing to watch, one officer seemed to have a bullet graze his head right. or, the, or the thought of it. So this is one of the officers that did go forward. That was tra- following the training, you think? Or a fragment or something struck him. Okay, we don't, I don't know exactly don't know. what it was. They retreated when they received gunfire, but they should have reorganized and gone and back. There were sufficient right. resources there to go back. You can't just... Go back, retreat, and never go back. And that's the problem. And Shimon is absolutely right. This thing should have been resolved one way or the other. Now, is it risky? Is it dangerous? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no question about that. But it's also the job that you have. We're going to take another break right now. And like before, this tape is still going to be running as if this were live and in real time. But we will be back in a moment. We are still watching. We are 19 minutes in now on the 77-minute tape that shows how long police in Uvalde waited and waited and waited to confront an active shooter massacring children and teachers more than a month ago. It is unbelievably difficult to watch, but we have to keep watching because we want to keep showing you the reality to help us advance our understanding of why this happened selfishly so it never happens again. So a response like this never happens again. And while we were in the break and the video was still rolling, officers continued to talk over radio about how the shooter was contained. One officer asked about wanting to move in and was told, just wait, you're doing everything you're supposed to. And we turn back now to the footage. And our experts are watching right now as we're seeing this. And I I have to ask you immediately, I mean, Andrew McCabe, when you see is help us understand why these officers are taking the positions they are right now. They're at the end of the hallway. I mean, obviously, the shooter's at the far end from the earlier footage we saw. Right. What is this telling you about what they think is happening down the hall? So you have the initial response where three officers go down the hall to the, they set up around the doorway and they receive incoming fire. They run back to this position you can see on the screen here, and they take positions of cover. That is where they hold for, for quite some time, half hour, 45 minutes maybe. Um, and you can hear some of their communications. They know that they have colleagues at the far end of the hall. They've taken up positions of cover as if they expect the gunman to come out into the hall and they are prepared to address him there. You can even hear them talking about things like watch out for crossfire so they don't want to shoot the guys at the other end, the good guys at the other end of the hall. All of this tells me, Laura, that they are thinking of this situation as a barricaded subject, not as a 
active shooter, right? In a barricaded subject situation, if there is nobody inside with that barricaded subject, there's no immediate danger to persons inside, you would set up in a formation like this, protect the perimeter, wait for that barricaded subject to burn himself out or come out, and then you can address him on ground that's more favorable to you. That is not what we have here. This is an active shooter situation. There are children and teachers dying in that room. It's also a school. I mean, the idea that we're not in like an isolated warehouse where there's no one inside. You have one area to contain. I mean, the idea that there are other classrooms. We know that they are actually trying to get other kids out at this point, right? They were. They were getting other kids out in some of the surrounding classrooms. But by this point, they would have had everyone out of the classroom. But, you know, when you look at this video and having covered barricaded situations... There's no sense of urgency here. There's just, everyone is just standing around trying to figure out what to do. What's next? What are we doing? Let's go. Trying to figure out, okay, who's going to sort of take the lead here? There's zero leadership here. None. As as officers come and go from different organizations, the sheriff's department, you see the Border Border Patrol Patrol, is coming in. Not a single one of them walks among the group and divides people up, puts people in position, tells them what to do, gives assignments. That's what you said. You know, 21 years in law enforcement, some of that as a member of the SWAT team in the New York City office of the FBI. That's the training. That's how you execute. Everybody has a role. I mean, look, they're kneeling behind the shield as if the guy, as if the gunman is going to come out. And and that was your point too, Ramsey, right? And he's not going to come out. I mean, he knows the police are there. I mean, when, they, when he encountered the first two and fired at him, now why would he come out into the hall, of into course. the open? It doesn't, yeah. It's not logical to think that. And so what they're doing now and the positions that they're taking, that's a ballistic shield they got. They've got everything they need to take this guy, everything they need. they got a ballistic shield, they got long guns, they got vests, they got everything they need. This really, I mean, there's no command and control at all that's taking place. And that's even more important when you've got a a city like this or a town like this where you've got all these different agencies. agencies And we know there's at least eight who arrive on, I mean, at least eight different agencies. And it's worth noting, I mean, just watching this video with all of you, watching this unfold, I'm watching, frankly, as as a scared mom, watching this in a school, I see your anger about what's happening as members of law enforcement. So I want to listen in and see what's happening right now. Thank <laughs> you. 
One of the things we're hearing about, and we heard them say, it was a little bit hard to hear it here, but they said they're waiting for the negotiator. When we approached, he started shooting. They said the kids don't want to come out. The communication that we got is that there's kids in there, and you just heard an officer asking for some kind of a master key and then entering into one classroom and somebody coming out, one person out of that particular room. When, when you're watching this, gentlemen, and, and thinking about what's happening here, Shimon, what's happening on the outside at this point in time? Well, We're seeing this vantage point, but what else is happening? Right. Outside, around the school, there are those parents that are starting to show up, and they realize what's going on. They realize that the cops are taking too long. They're not getting any, any information. They see heavily armed officers outside the school. They're wondering why they're not in the school. So they know there's something going on inside the school, and they're seeing all these officers that are outside the school. They themselves want to go inside and try and rescue their kids. The parents, what always amazed me was that the parents almost immediately knew something wasn't right here. They didn't have access to their children, and they saw all the officers standing around outside, and they were just wondering what was taking so long. And that feeling that they must have had in those moments just wondering where their kids were. And that's why we saw all that footage of them outside yelling at the officers. Some of them were handcuffed. It was rough out there. But they knew something, whatever was going on inside, was not right. I mean, they're asking for a master key. How does, this, how does this factor in terms of training in the barricade or the thought of the active shooter? I would note that we we haven't heard those horrible gunshots in quite some time on this video as we're hearing. And, and by the way, for many people, myself included... Outside of maybe a Hollywood movie, I've never heard the sounds of an AR-15 or assault rifle like that. I mean, my heart is still racing thinking about what that sounded like and the ability to get so many rounds off in that amount of time. That's right. But you're asking now for a, a, a master key. Where does this factor in? Well, there's a lot of ways to get into a space where you have to eliminate a threat. It's, we refer to it as breaching. There's all kinds of breaching tools, everything from a sledgehammer or a halligan tool or rabbit tools that put pressure on a door frame that you then enable you to knock it in. They're explosive breaching. But the first and easiest and most basic way to get in is with the key. And anyone who's gone through tactical training understands that that's one of the first questions you ask when you get on scene is, do we have a key but to that space? But we're 29 minutes in. It's about 26 minutes in they asked for inexplicable. it. And I should also mention, Laura, we're waiting for the negotiator. 
You don't negotiate with an active shooter. There is no negotiating with an active shooter. That's not, uh, that's not even on the... What is the... I mean, is just take the shooter out? That's well, it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, that, that, yeah, it's just that simple. I mean, you know, first of all, there's no tactical planning going on at, at all to distract him yeah. so that an entry team can come in to make entry and take him out, okay? Now, you want to incapacitate him, but to be honest with you, at this point in time, you're looking to just kill him and just stop the threat, period, okay? And there's no tactical planning. They're just standing around. There's nobody taking charge. There's no, I don't know what's going on outside, but you've got windows. Mm -hmm. There's a way in through that. It break the window, do something to distract him. You know what's happening right now? We just realized, I mean, right now is when the first, we got a 911 call coming out of one of the classrooms. That's right. Right now, at this point in time, which means that someone's alive in some of those classrooms. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're alive, calling for help, calling 911. People are alive. People are bleeding. Every time the heart beats, that blood is getting pushed out of the body. I mean, how you can't survive long. And you're talking about children. You're talking about adults. All those shots, you, you know someone has been hit. And so you've got to make entry. I'm sorry. You just have to make entry. And we're... we're... We're all sorry that that did not happen. And we've been watching these officers get equipped for action. You see, and they're, they're putting on gear. They're getting equipped. But no one's moving down the hall. That hallway between those green lines, as you're saying, is, is not happening. The shooter is still in the and classroom. And the distance is too far, Laura. They're, they're so far away from, even if he did come out, look at the length, that the kind of shot you'd have to take. There's no reason for them to be this That's far right. back at this point in time. Now you have a second ballistic shield has shown up on the scene and it is just placed next to the first one and neither of them actually go down uh, towards the target. We're gonna at this what, point, they should be advancing. That's they right. should move, be advancing. Then. Move. Like you just want to yell at them and say, move, move. Well, we'll be right back. We're going to keep watching. We're back showing you all the time that has elapsed since the killer broke into Robb Elementary in Uvalde and when he was finally confronted by police from beginning to end. Right before the last break, we saw police with body armor, and as the tape continued to roll in the break and we were watching it all unfold, officers are heard discussing the classroom where the shooter is, and the footage is now at the 35-minute mark. Keep in mind, it's a 77-minute video. We are at 35 minutes, Okay. Look at where we are right now. I want you guys to, to, we have a map, I think, of the location to try to understand this body cam we're seeing in the upper left corner of the screen and what we're seeing in real time um, from the vantage point we've seen before. Um, Andrew McCabe, help me walk through a little bit about where we are. This body cam footage compared to these sort of long guns we're seeing at the end here. Where, what's happening right now? Are they converging on each other? So the, so. At the bottom of your large screen, Laura, where the, you see the uh, three long guns pointing down the hall, that's the direction we've been looking all along. The classrooms, 111 and 112, are just down that hallway and then to the left. If you go all the way to the end of that hallway, you're at the south entrance. At the south entrance, you have Officer Gazaway. So in the top left corner of your screen, you're looking at body camera coverage from Officer Gazaway. You will not see Officer Gazaway's face because that camera is attached to the front of his vest. So right there, he's walking up the hallway, essentially towards these men at the, in, a, in the big screen with the long guns. And so that's the, that's the perspective that you're getting. Wait, as this is happening, look at this time mark. We know the timestamp that right now a 911 call is coming from inside of room 112. Um, it's a, a, a child... And they're saying, please send help for my teacher. She is shot. 
but still alive. A lot of people are gone. Please hurry up. Come immediate. One twelve. It's it's dumbfounding and it's infuriating and it's heartbreaking that we are how many minutes and 37 minutes in a 911 call is coming in. We're seeing people at the end of the hall, um, Chief Ramsey, who are who are still not moving up. 911 calls are coming in. We learned a long time, more than a half hour ago that one of the officers wives had been shot. I mean, I'm asking you to explain this. I can't. I can't explain it because there is no explanation for what they're doing right now. They're doing absolutely nothing. And so uh, there there is no explanation. This is totally inconsistent with anything. Even without active shooter training, it wouldn't make sense uh, to just sit there and allow this to unfold the way it's unfolding. I mean, they've got equipment. They've got everything they need. They got the personnel. The only thing they're missing right now is courage. Shimon, when I'm looking at Look at all the different uniforms. I mean, just looking at this for the first time for many people who are watching this unfold. Uh, we have been told for several weeks now the name Chief Arredondo. Are we seeing him still? I don't see him anywhere. So we see all these different uniforms. This is not just the school resource officers anymore. It, it, is Border Patrol here? Are the Uvalde police here? What are these uniforms? You've been yeah. there for two months. So you see Border Patrol, obviously. And then that you see someone from a uh, sheriff's deputy there kneeling uh, with one in the ballistic uh, shields. And I know, I think a Uvalde police, there may be another sheriff, a border patrol may be there behind him. But at this point, those um, SWAT team members, for lack of a better word, right. the BORTAC units that right. we've heard, they, they start arriving here. And th- these are the guys uh, that uh, Arredondo, Pete Arredondo says he called for because they needed these heavily armed officers, border patrol agents to come in and try and end this. But the, these guys had the equipment. I mean, the officers there in the beginning had the equipment That's to do right. this. So it never made any sense. And the more you look at this video and the more you get these explanations from them, it doesn't make any sense why he had to wait for these officers. Courage, you know, you talk to the families, you know what I'm going to tell you? A bunch of cowards. A bunch of cowards who stayed in the hallway and were more concerned about their own lives than the children that were inside that classroom. You are not, you, we are 40 minutes into this. Not one of them, one of them makes any kind of move to get closer to the classroom. You don't, they're not being aggressive and everyone is just standing around like wondering what to do. And let, Border Patrol, we don't have the whole story on Border Patrol, but they're trained in how to deal with a lot of these situations. So what are they doing? Why aren't they being more aggressive here? You know, everyone points to Chief Arredondo. Fine. But there is much more to this entire story than, than we have been told. It's true. And another quick break right now. We'll be right back with this tape still rolling. The gunman has still not been confronted. Just think about that. Think about someone who called from inside of the classroom. Mr. Rogers used to say, look for the heroes. They're in the hallway. The little girls and little boys are in the classrooms waiting for them to come. Seventy-seven minutes in Uvalde. During that break, officers and multiple law enforcement agencies were seen inside and outside the school discussing the layout. We also saw gas canisters being brought in. I want to keep focusing on the tape as it's rolling, and we have not paused it at all. And I, but let me just pause for a second and say this: I, this is not easy to watch. 
We don't pretend that this is easy to watch. Think back to how we began this program and why we're doing this. We want people to understand from those three reasons. We want the families to be able to get the answers. We want to be able to have those questions to the officers to know exactly what happened in just a transparency and accountability. We have a law enforcement expert panel here and Shimon, who's been on the ground for all of this time. We want to be able to prevent this, this sort of response from ever happening again. Because sadly, we are in a world where gun violence seems to be as prevalent as American pie, as apple pie, okay? And so here we are trying to figure out ways to alert the public, to help us understand, to prevent what we're seeing. Let's, from ever happening again, remember that. This is not some gratuitous viewing of this tragedy. I don't want this to happen again. My panel here, I want to bring you all back in on this conversation because what we're seeing now, this is painful to watch, but I don't, I can't look away because I don't want to ever report this again. I don't ever want to know if this happens again, but you, we're talking about gas canisters. Why are gas canisters coming in now? What, what is the deal with that? What do we know about why we would obviously go that route? Is that a, just a, a last ditch effort? What is that about? You know, CS gas is what we're talking about. It, it, it can be used in situations to debilitate uh, somebody who is a barricaded subject to kind of distract them and, and render them incapable of returning fire. Is it deadly? No. It's not, it's not deadly. It can, it can induce pretty serious uh, uh, reactions in people. I am not sure how it would work on uh, a classroom full of, you know, fourth graders. Uh, but you can only imagine that they were considering, I guess, some sort of a plan in which they would enter and use CS gas. I don't believe it was ever deployed, so it ended up being time-wasted. Mm-hmm. No, but just why would you deploy CS gas in this kind of a situation? This right. is an active shooter. That's right. They have, have what they children to- in a class. You know, I spoke to some of those kids who had just been fired on. A hundred rounds of AR-15 style rifle rounds. And I want to pause because Shimon, while you talk about we are going to hear in a couple moments, a couple seconds really, that gunfire yet again. I want to prepare the audience. It is very difficult to hear. This is an assault rifle. I mean the the propensity to get so many rounds off in a moment and in a short amount of time. Let's listen in. Is that, what am I seeing in that? Is that still a shield there? It is a shield bar. So yeah. you, you heard the shot that appears to have grabbed their attention. You have about half a dozen or so officers go down the hall, 
and they notably leave one of the shields behind. So the shield is the, we had heard again and again and again that one of the reasons for the delay initially was they had requested ballistic shields and they were waiting for those to arrive. And of course, um, is that, not he's wearing used. a uh, gas mask there, right? I think, or no, the border patrol. Like, I, I don't understand what the purpose of that well, was. Well, I saw a couple of them put gas masks on. Okay. Uh, I, I, they just weren't organized. I, they don't know what they want to do. Yeah. But they go down the hall, and as Andy said, they leave one of the shields behind, which supposedly... It's what they were waiting on was all this equipment. But they still aren't making entry. That's right. They still are. And, and they just heard additional shots fired. They still are not making entry. And there are, mind you, there have been 37 minutes between the last time we heard gunshots to now. So the idea of if they thought it was a barricaded situation or no longer That's an right. active shooter, that has now, now been know. re-triggered, right? Now they know. Well, and it'll be another half an hour before they make entry. And I just want to talk about the victims, right? Because I spoke to one of the mothers uh, of one of the kids um, who survived, who survived. And she told me that her son recollects, remembers someone hearing a police officer say, hey, are you, are you yeah. inside? Do you need help? And the, the kid answers back to this, yeah, we're in here. And then the gunman shoots and shoots kills, and kills him. him. So that is happening. It, now, it could have been in this moment. We just don't know. We don't. we don't know. And it's very hard to get that kind of specific information out of the children. Um, but I think law enforcement has some idea because actually it was FBI, uh, like forensic, the, the type of... The ERT. The, yeah, yeah, who deal with interviewing kids. Sure. They yeah. sent them in to interview all of these kids to try and elicit specific information. But that's what's going on. There are more people being shot. That's what we're led to believe when you talk to the kids and the parents... Because the gunman kept walking around. And the kids had to act as if they were dead because they knew if he saw that they were alive, he was going to exactly. shoot them. Remember we had the young, one young girl who testified via video for Congress that she smeared the blood of a classmate and friend on her body to play dead. And a teacher who survived believing that the entire classroom was playing dead. We still yet to reach the breach of that classroom door with all those officers gathered and all these minutes in. I'll be right back. Seventy-seven minutes in Uvalde. Our tape is rolling. It's still rolling. It's been rolling. And in the minutes you missed, law enforcement failed to make entry and have now been talking in these groups that we're seeing. Let's keep watching together with our experts. This is minute 55. Minute 55. Now, the idea of trying to penetrate, the idea of going in and, and trying to at least go into that classroom, um, there was obviously going to be a risk to the officer's life. There was already risks and lives likely either lost or dying people, children, to teachers at least, in the classroom. What do you make of this calculus of not even going in to try to get a shot off? There shouldn't have even been a calculus, right? Every law enforcement officer knows when they hold up their right hand and are sworn in, they are accepting that risk that someday, God forbid, they might be in this situation or one very similar, and they'll be called upon to put themselves in harm's way. Watching this, Laura, I can't help but think back uh, to, I think, 10 days before this, we had the mass shooting at the Topps Grocery Store in Buffalo, and you had a retired police officer working as a security guard in that store who wildly outgunned with no uh, body armor, 
went to the sound of the gun, addressed that gunman, fired some shots, and lost his life as a result, but probably saved other saved lives. Saved life, because he, what he was able to do, and I, I was there and I covered uh, that story, sadly, um, he was able to slow the, slow the gunman down, and that gave police time and probably saved a couple of lives because it just it slowed the gunman down. You just kind of stopped the momentum, right? We, we've been hearing a lot about momentum in these situations, the momentum. So you slow the, the gunman down, the police have time, gives them more time to get there, and they can then neutralize the gunman. And that, yeah. We didn't have that here. We had none of that here. There was just... They never Wait a second. To slow him Wait down. a second. Well, Are yeah. we seeing someone get hand sanitizer? Yeah. 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 Uh, now, maybe it's maybe it's nerves or something. I I I, there is I, no explanation I can't believe for, that for, for any of this right now. I mean, look at how they're just standing around in the hall. Uh, it wasn't long before it was as if they were afraid to even go into the hall to ex- expose themselves. Now they're just standing around. And it's something like what Andy said earlier. It's kind of like at the end of a training where everybody's just kind of standing around chatting or whatever. I mean, there's just no sense of urgency. There's no organization. There's no planning going on as to how they're going to make entry to take this guy out. I mean, what are they doing? Nothing. Well, that's, I mean, and part, I mean, think about this. I mean, as you all talk about, I mean, when I think about sort of the first responders, when we all think about first responders, we think about those who run towards danger right. while everyone else is running away. That's right. At the beginning, we saw a child see a gunman in the hallway and run away. No one will begrudge a child for running away. But I remember 9-11 as an example and seeing firefighters and first responders running in to a building after one had collapsed. Even when they saw the collapsing, they would go in. And we were looking at this, and it was the idea of selflessness that we expect of our first responders. The... Insult to injury, if you can add up the volumes of it, is the hand sanitizer in part. Thinking about something like, I wonder if I have germs on my hands. There are children calling 911, asking to come in because their teacher's alive. Laura, Laura, I've spent 47 years active service in policing, and I've seen officers put themselves in harm's way over and over again. I've seen them that lost their lives putting themselves in harm's way. My last eight years in Philadelphia, I lost eight officers in the line of duty in eight years. Five were shot to death. I mean, I've seen it my entire adult life. I've seen this. This is not representative of what policing is really all about. That's So when, when you ask, you know, what about this? What about there is no excuse for this. This guy should have been dead a long time ago. All right. They should have gone in there and they should have taken him out, period. You've got the equipment. You've got everything you need. The only thing that's missing is the courage to do what you've got to do. You talk to law enforcement officials. This is what you hear from them. It makes them mad that this happened. This, this is not representative of training of what law enforcement is supposed to do. This, one of, this will be one of the worst failures ever on the part of law enforcement. And so far none, far none. And, you know, one of the reasons why this is so shocking and so infuriating is because those of us in the community, from the law enforcement community, we've seen, we've seen the overwhelming examples that we've seen and experienced are the exact opposite of people running to the sound of the guns, running to danger, helping those around them, willing to sacrifice themselves. So coming from that experience and watching this is absolutely amazing. Well, let me ask you this question. We're one hour, two minutes, 54 seconds in approximately. We're, we're keeping this in real time as if it was happening. We're learning that they're saying that SWAT is on the way. Um, Andrew, you were a part of a SWAT team. When you get the call as SWAT team, because they weren't on the scene immediately, 
You're either called to be on to be a SWAT team and you're supposed to respond to that. What are you expecting? What what are the things that you would have expected to have already been done or attempted before they would call SWAT? Or is it contemporaneous with the with the 911 call? It is, you know, as soon as you get that call, you typically have all of all or most of your equipment with you 24 hours a day constantly because you're always waiting for that call. But you may not be close by. You know, the fact that it took them 45 minutes, an hour to get there. This, you know, this is a place, a very exactly. rural place. Those folks could have been spread out all over, you know, who knows how far away. That's why police officers, first responders, have been trained since Columbine to not wait for SWAT. No, you should never have heard that radio call, wait for SWAT to arrive. No, you are here. You've got the long guns. You've got the ballistic shields. There's 20 cops standing around in that hallway. Go down the hallway and do your job. They've been trained since Columbine? To Since do that, I mean, that we just think about that. I was going to say, I mean, Sandy I mean, Hook is transferred. And that was the process in Columbine, was to wait for SWAT, contain the area, wait for SWAT. And we said, no, that's not what we do. And training changed after, after Columbine. Well, sea change in training. You know, it wasn't always, I don't think, that patrol officers were, patrol officers were riding, riding around with long guns. And I think because of the act of shooter right. training, exactly that changed. Right. So they said, okay, especially with some of the smaller police departments, you need to start training your officers with these long guns because of these situations. You know, your, your officer in this small police department may be the first officer on scene in a situation like this. And so that officer needs to be ready to grab whatever gear they have in the car, and they should have the gear. We know, we know, Shimon, and you've seen this probably more than anyone. The majority of fatalities happen in the first few seconds, certainly in the first minute or two. We heard more than 100 shots fired in in under two minutes. That's true. Just walking down now, the Halligan tool is a a pry tool. I've used it hundreds of times when I work narcotics, when ripping gates off the doors and making forced entry and so But was the door locked? I mean, do we even know that it was locked? locked? but But even if they didn't... They didn't try the door, but it's logical to think that maybe you have to pry it open. Now, I don't know if that door opened out. It probably did, which means you have to pry it. Using a hammer against a door, you're going against the strength of the door. So you'd have to pry it. Can I just tell you something? That in, like, the hours after this happened and I was on the ground, these are the questions I was asking the DPS, the Department of Public uh, Safety, Texas DPS, which was running this investigation and were the ones that were doing all of the communications. And I kept asking them, was the door locked? How do you know the door wasn't locked? You know, what kind of door was it? Why couldn't they get in the door? And they kept saying, well, you know, maybe this and that. And then when you look at this video, they had all the answers. Of course they they had all the answers hours after this happened. And they would not tell us the truth. And they wouldn't tell... I mean, do the families know the truth? And that's, that's what's infuriating, I think, for all of, all of us looking here. I mean, we are sitting here, we're analyzing, we're evaluating, we're thinking about all the reasons it's important to play this in its totality. Not snippets, not sound bites, but to actually have people walk through as it happened, the shooting at Robb Elementary that claimed so many lives. And it's not just those who have lost their lives. There are survivors who have an unbelievable road ahead of them, an unbelievable road ahead of them. The psychological impact of this violence is unreal. But it's compounded. It's made worse by when, when they see this. When the kids, they have to ask their mothers, why didn't the police come and help us? They, we heard them. They were outside our doors. Why didn't they help us? <sighs> why? Listen, you see ballistic shields. You see uh, Kevlar helmets. You see level three and level four uh, body, body armor. armor on these people. They've, it, I mean, they've they got long guns. 
They've got everything they need. And right now, they're just standing around. And how many of those people, the 21 that died, bled to death while, you know, they're standing around, not getting in there? If they had gotten medical attention, would they still be alive? Well, we're going to talk about that. I think they're, they're doing some sort of triage at some point in the area, building something. I think we're, we're at minute, an hour and four <clears throat> minutes, the last agonizing minutes before officers finally breach the classroom is coming up next. We'll be right back. We still haven't gotten to that final 77th minute in Uvalde, but we are about to. During the commercial break, we know Uvalde school's police chief, Arredondo, was attempting to negotiate with the shooter. Finally, and I mean finally, we're going to watch this to its conclusion. First of all, I, one of the things that's important to think about here is how they're standing around. Based on what you've all said about the lack, of, they're almost getting caught flat-footed. If he were yeah. to come out, what's going to happen? If he was to break out of that room, right? They'd all be dead. They'd be shooting each other, and he'd be shooting them. I mean, look at the way they're just standing around in a very lackadaisical uh, way. I mean, you still have an active shooter inside of a classroom that you know is, is armed and armed with an assault weapon. It's just a complete lack of discipline on the scene, a lack of organization, and all that comes down from a fundamental failure of leadership. There is no leadership on the ground. There's no tactical leadership on this scene. Well, here's the well, thing. All the, go ahead. The want, I mean, everyone's EMT, here. They, I don't know, right? We were just talking about yeah. this. It this appears. This, this guy in the black this, shirt yeah. with the stethoscope. He and appears to be an EMT, but somehow he is the one that's commanding these officers where to go, where to stand. Um, really bizarre. Just this is so bizarre and so painful. I know we keep saying this, but this is painful, painful to watch because we know the end result. And you were on the ground and you were asking these questions immediately. They had this tape. They had the information. They knew what was going on. But I, the EMT is there presumably to prepare yeah, for those lives there. that they could actually save. And we right. know that so many were lost even en route to the hospital. One of the things I want to uh, point out here and thinking about is um, we have been learning and hearing for more than a month now about one name, Arredondo. We have said repeatedly on our airwaves, who else would have been responsible? Who else would have been a part of trying to create that tactical leadership? We have not gotten the names. We've heard about the notion of it being an abject failure. They've pointed to simply the Arredondo team over everyone else. But look at all these different uniforms. This is not one cohesive unit. So not, are you guys, it, it, you look at this as, as law enforcement in particular. Do, is it odd that they would all be deferring to somebody at the level of Arredondo? Where is their own individual agency leadership here? Well, under incident command, which is the way they should be organized at this point in time. But they were. Then e- these other agencies would actually be under the command of the person in charge in ICS. That's why tabletop exercises is so important when you bring people together and you work through scenarios. And that that's the whole point of this. So, yeah, you could bring in a variety of agencies, but if you're structured under incident command, then people know what their role is, they know who's in charge, and, and who's in charge of what. It's That's just right. There was no then, incident command here. There was no, so I went to a hearing uh, when I was a few weeks ago where they were uh, talking about school safety, and uh, one of those leaders of this committee, the uh, senior law enforcement official, said not, there was no command, incident command inside, but there was no incident command outside either. Like, yeah. And so basically... No one was in charge. It was a free-for-all. Yeah. 
Yeah, a command post would have been established outside of, of, of the course. building. Of course, and that incident commander, which in this case would normally be Arredondo, because he owns the turf, right? He is the school police chief. We are in a school, so by default, he is he would be the incident commander. But he has the ability to delegate tactical command, or exactly. things like that, to other people. So once Bortak arrives, you would expect that the Bortak What's Bortak? Bortak is the Border Patrol SWAT team. Those okay. are the yeah. heavily armed, well-equipped agents you saw come in about a half hour in. Um, it's, it would be almost expected that they would take over the tactical planning and the execution but of the you don't even need to wait for them because if you look here there's a uh, dps the department of public safety texas dps they're there they're already right. there you could see him there just right there in the hallway hiding behind that wall heavily armed he's wearing a helmet a ballistic helmet but, but let's get back to the original sin which is we should never have gotten That's to right. this no, point no those That's first right. six officers should have gone in that Gone in that room, suffered whatever return fire they got, and taken out that taken out that killer. First five minutes in, we're done. You know, I have to wonder because remember, very early on, we saw one of the officers who had the vest on. He had a tie. You all commented on the idea of maybe he was a detective or somebody who was in the area in some form or fashion. And he seems to hold the back of his head as if he had taken fire or maybe it had grazed in some way. He has another officer look at his head at one point to figure out if he's injured. I can't help but think, had the officer actually been injured, does the training then change or did the officer's response change because now one of their own has been hit? I mean, it shouldn't. I mean, listen, and and he would not have to be the person to go back right away. They had sufficient resources there. I mean, he was not incapacitated. He was not incapacitated. But, but had that's he what been I mean. Injured, had he been, would that have changed it for the you officers? You've got other people that have to step up. Well, you set up for that. Yeah. You, you prepare for that. You, there's a way to pull them out you for pull safety. That, you pull that exactly. officer to safety. You put him behind a position of cover, and then you go re- resume the fight. The bottom line is you have to address that threat. You know, thinking about that, I mean, the idea of pulling him out and what we're seeing here. What, I mean, look at this. I'm hearing a lot of talking, unlike the early on. I mean, you guys are talking about the idea of how, I mean, there was, it was almost like radio silent at first, unless you heard the officer talking about his wife having been shot. There's chatter. They're having conversations in the hallway. Wait, let's listen in. Hold on.
So much to talk about. We have seen the full video every moment that we have. You have now seen as well. And we're going to talk about every aspect of it. But I first want to get a reaction from those who've seen it here at the table. What is your reaction after now having seen the full, complete video as we have it? I don't know. I, it's very hard for me to watch. I've watched this video several times um, and each time, it just gets, honestly, it just gets harder and harder. And I wish that we would never see this again. But it's going to be an important tool for law enforcement. It is. And it's going to change, hopefully. Uh, and, and hopefully, this never, ever happens again. I am, one of the things that struck me at the end, there was an officer uh, at the end there, the hall there, to the right, and how, emo- how emotional he was. And they had to, other officers had to restrain him. And the other thing is, I cannot even imagine when those doors open, what those officers must have seen inside these, those classrooms. I agree. I mean, this is very difficult to watch. I mean, it's embarrassing uh, to watch. We do have to take lessons from it, as hard as it is, that these things can happen. But my first reaction is a couple things. Number one, um, Arredondo and the acting chief of Uvalde that were there should never lead another agency at all, ever again. And those officers who stood around while these kids were just dying, either being shot to death or just bleeding to death, need to turn in their badges. Because when a time comes to step up, that's part of the job. You got to step up. I know it's not easy. Listen, I've been shot at. I've been in three shootings in my career. It is not a good feeling. And there's nothing wrong with being afraid, but it's what you do in that moment that makes the difference. They didn't step up. They let everybody down, including themselves. I don't know how they live with it. I agree with everything the commissioner said. I, I, you know, what we just witnessed was the inevitable result that should have happened an hour and a half earlier. And what I cannot get past, Laura, is thinking about how many of those children how, 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 and the teachers died during that hour and a half that they were standing in the hall doing nothing. We will never know, um, but it's almost guaranteed that an earlier action could have saved lives. Yep. I, I mean, I'm just, I just am struck as a mom. I remember when I first learned that I was pregnant and my father said, congratulations, you will have your heart live outside of your body for the rest of your days. Those are all of our children inside those classrooms. And the mothers and fathers outside They deserved better. We'll be right back. 
For all the insight that this heartbreaking video out of Vivaldi has given us about what unfolded that tragic day, we're left with more questions than answers. Shimon, Andy, and Chief Ramsey are back with me. And, and Chief Ramsey, I want to go to you on this because I remember when you and I were covering the Derek Chauvin trial. Mm-hmm. And one of the things you so poignantly said was the video of George Floyd being killed would change the future of law enforcement and the way people are trained. Right. You all have been in law enforcement and have had these extraordinary careers. Seeing <clears throat> what we've seen today, does this video become incorporated into the training of your officers going forward? I think it almost has to because I think it needs to be a reminder, you know, why it's so important to take action and take action immediately and not hesitate, not wait for some supervisor to tell you what to do. There's a reason why the training is what it is. And the training is good. They just didn't follow it. But there is excellent training for active shooters uh, that are being taught to law enforcement around the country. This is a perfect example of what not to do and why it, it's so important that those first few minutes when you arrive, that's, you, that's when you have to step up and you have to do what you have to do. Is it risky? Absolutely it's risky. Could some of those officers been seriously wounded or even killed? Yeah. <clears throat> but they had more equipment and they had better protection than those kids and, and, and those teachers in that classroom. And they relinquished control, essentially, to the shooter <clears throat> in a way by delaying all this time. I mean, he was able to do what he wanted to do. And you noted the idea of the power of the weapon. We heard these gunshots. And for our viewers, likely that many people are hearing the power and the frequency and the ability of those weapons to be able to fire off that many rounds that amount of time. Tell me about the power of this type of weapon. Sure. So an AR-15 shoots a, uh, a bullet that's a .223 caliber rifle round. Uh, it egg- That projectile exits the gun at about 3,000 feet per second, which is, to put that in perspective, that's about three times faster than the bullet that, that a normal police officer's pistol would shoot. So traveling at that velocity, the damage that that bullet can do to the human body, much less a fourth grader's body, is just devastating. It's absolutely devastating. Now, combine that with the fact that the AR-15 is a semi-automatic rifle, which means you can fire those bullets as quickly as you can pull the trigger. There's no hesitation. There's no, you know, pulling a bolt back and, and manually loading the next round. So that's why that weapon is so unbelievably, so devastatingly uh, dangerous uh, in, a, in a mass shooting situation. And we also have to you know, remind folks where this was happening. This is a small room. It's two classrooms kind of adjoined. Um, not, there's no real place for these kids to defend themselves. To, so, you know, they're in, these, in this classroom trapped. The gunman's firing at them. And not to be... He's walking around. Walking around. And, you know, this is graphic, but, you know, the kids were telling me that the parents of the kids that survived said that they would see teeth. They saw teeth. On the ground. That's how from the from the um, gunshot from the wounds. I mean, this and is oh. there was so much blood. You talk about the smoke. The thing that the kids all remember is the smoke and the sound. The sound of the gunfire. And the one Jaden who I interviewed, he said that he was under the desk hiding with his hands over his ears because of the the noise that was coming from from the rifle, and it was unbearable for so long to be trapped inside that room and just the gunshots and the gunshots kept coming. I mean, for so long, think about this. We, we watched the entirety of a 77-minute reign of terror on human lives while we watched officers who we dialed 911. I mean, the show began today 
um, you know, as we were leading in from Anderson, talking about the ability to have numbers to call if you wanted help. We know the number of 911. And they were on the scene. They weren't en route. They were, they were there, Ramsey. They were actual, actually yeah. there. Do you know the kids? I, I, you know, for me, obviously, I've spent a lot of time with the kids and the family. But they, they, they showed more courage than these officers. Because you know what? They, one of the things that the moms told me is that the kids that survived wish they could have helped their friends who died. And they cannot get over it. They tell their moms all the time, if only we wanted to help them. We all, it's not, it's all of them. The kids who survived have to live with that, knowing they wanted to help their friends. The police were outside. Police weren't helping. But we wanted to help. My first comment, and I want to end it this way too, this is not representative of policing in the United States. It just isn't. I'm, this, there's no excuse for what they did. But I have seen too many officers put themselves at harm's way with not even thinking about it to look at this and then have people get the impression that this is now policing and this is how police are going to respond to active shooters or any other dangerous situation. Just not true. Andrew McCabe, Charles Ramsey, Shimon Prokopez will be back. Thank you so much. And for all that you and I have seen tonight, some have seen even more. The state senator who represents Uvalde and is among the many still demanding answers is going to join me next. The Texas House Committee investigating the Uvalde school massacre plans to officially release the full 77-minute surveillance video that we showed you tonight on Sunday, along with a report to victims' families. And as the community continues to grieve, it's also trying to figure out how to keep another tragedy like this from happening ever again. I want to bring in Texas State Senator Roland Gutierrez, whose district includes Uvalde. I'm very glad you're here, Senator, but I have to ask you, I mean, you and I have had a conversation in the past. We've been following what you have been doing, demanding the answers. And this video, unbelievable to watch. You were a proponent of making sure people saw it in full because you understood the need for people to fully understand just what happened here. What is your reaction to this video, these moments, 77 of them? Well, Laura, like everybody that's seen this, it's just absolutely shocking and disgusting what we saw. However, there is still a lot that we haven't seen. This House committee interviewed 20 law enforcement witnesses, 17 civilian witnesses. That's it. There was 360 cops on the scene. 91 from the Department of Public Safety. 12 of them were in that hallway, 12 DPS troopers, and yet they're not on that video. You have 19 other body cams in that room, and yet we only get to see one. We didn't get to see the body cam that was right outside of that uh, room where he sheltered himself in with the kids. When he shot back at the first seven officers, I saw this after the first week when I got in an argument with a PIO officer at DPS. I went into their, into their trailer, spoke to him, shut the door behind me, and in front of me was nine Texas Rangers viewing this video until I was discovered and asked to leave. A week after you, you saw this? A, after I saw this, I saw a body cam camera, and you see sheetrock flying through at the officers as they're huddling to try to take cover. That is the very extreme power of this type of weaponry. 
And no, make no mistake, as strong and as powerful as that weaponry is, these officers failed in their mission. They failed in their training on what they're supposed to do in an active shooter situation. You know, we were watching and thinking about all the different uniforms we saw, all the different agencies represented. And you mentioned more than 300 officers collectively on the scene. We saw just a select few of them. I want to play for you what Colonel McGraw had, McGraw had to say. He is a colonel with the Texas Department of Public Safety, and they report directly to the governor. He was speaking um, to the legislature and describing what he called, well, the response and abject failure. Here he is. There's compelling evidence that the law enforcement response to the attack at Robb Elementary was an abject failure. Three minutes after the subject entered the West Building, there was a sufficient number of armed officers wearing body armor to isolate, distract, and neutralize the subject. Now, we're hearing a lot about the name Chief Arredondo. Um, his comment about abject failure seemed to be focused um, quite specifically on a certain agency, not the overall number of agencies there. Who do you think we need to get answers from? And why are we only hearing about one person? It seems to me the 300 officers or so on the scene have a lot of explaining to do. I think Steve McCraw needs to look in the mirror when he talks about abject failures. There was eight different law enforcement agencies just walking around, milling around, expecting what, waiting what to do. Not one radio worked inside that building. They were all on their phones. I'm not talking about the gentleman that was texting his wife that she unfortunately succumbed. I'm talking about everybody else that was on their phones. And those phones weren't working because they just were inoperable in there. And we can get into that story of neglect down the road. But there was one officer, and if you look at the back of his vest, he was being followed around by the body cam officer. Both of those were state employees. That one officer on the back of his vest, it said Texas Ranger. And that Texas Ranger spent most of his time walking around that building, walking in that hallway, talking to someone. So someone was telling him what to do. Who was that person? I filed a lawsuit on August 4th, we'll be in court to get the rest of the material that we've asked for so that we can get to the bottom of what happened here because I fear that what's happened in this 77 minute video is just open more questions than answers. State Senator Roland Gutierrez, thank you. And we'll keep an eye on that particular lawsuit as well. The answers are deserved for the families. Back with some final thoughts in just a moment. Next. Thank you. Thank you. I want to close tonight repeating our call for Uvalde officials to give us a full and accurate account of what happened at Robb Elementary. Shimon Perkipez is still here with us today, and he was there. He's been there for two months. I mean, you have been the eyes and ears on the ground. You've been asking the questions. You've been persistent, as always, about trying to get the information. The big, big question people have now, of course, our thoughts are on these families. Yeah. I mean, this coming Sunday was supposed to be the first day that they would have actually seen this full video. It was released earlier this week. We we're just now playing it now as well. What was the family's reaction to having it already played, and, and what's going to happen this Sunday now? They're, they're really upset. Um, this Sunday, they're going to have the legislators who are doing this investigation come in and take uh, questions. I don't know how many family members are going to show up. They're so angry over how all of this has transpired, certainly this week with the video. But I, I think, um, you know, one of the survivors, the kids that was in, was in the classroom, little Jaden that I spoke to, I think 
you know, his, um, his bravery and his words of wisdom in some ways and just talking about what, what happened kind of sums up, I think, the way people there are kind of feeling. I just listen to how he talks about that day. Me and my friend were scared and we didn't want to talk or nothing and we, and we covered our ears so we won't hear the gunshots. You covered your ears? Were you hearing a lot of gunshots? Mm-hmm. Me and my friend didn't have a lot of space so we just tried not to move so he won't see us. And were you wondering what was going on, why you had to be there for so long? Yes. Do you feel comfortable talking about what happened? and Is it helping you? Yeah? I feel a little bit happy because my friends are in a be- my friend and my cousin are in a better place. In a better place? Where? In heaven. And this, this is a deeply religious community, um, and faith has really been helping them. And, you know, you talk about answers. I think they're going to get them. I really do. And I think the mayor there in Uvalde, he's taken a lot of heat. But I do believe he has taken, he has turned on all of this. And he really wants to fight and get information out. But he is being handcuffed by the district attorney there. And he's concerned about releasing information because he's afraid that something's going to happen to him if he does. But I think in the end, I have faith and I know it, that the truth will come out and we will get everything that we ask for. Because we're going to continue to fight and those families are going to continue to fight. And we're going to get, we're going to get the truth in all of this in the end. We have to. There, there is... There's no alternative. I mean, the idea of this happening again, I'm just thinking about the parents. What we're hearing, what we heard for 77 minutes, these were people's children who were waiting. And the parents are there still fighting, just like you. Thank you, Shimon, for all that you've done. And thank you all for watching. I know it's been difficult. I'll be here Monday night. The CNN special report, Saudi Arabia, Kingdom of Secrets, is next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.